1: hey welcome to dr Drew podcast everybody thank you all for supporting the people that support us uh, we try to carefully select the people that are um supporting us here and we appreciate you supporting them. uh don't forget to check out tuesday wednesday and thursday at three o'clock we do that streaming show dr tv uh, a lot of controversy swirling around that show particularly as it pertains to vaccines and vaccine therapies and lockdowns and Try to interview all the people that, um, well, maybe were silenced during this whole thing. Try to get an understanding, ascend to the truth, as they say. And of course, after dark, it's all at drdrew.com. But uh, most importantly, we appreciate you being here today. Guest is Tara Van Uh Her website is Tara, T-A-R-A Vanderduesen, V-A-N-D-E-R-D-U-S-S-E-N.com. We can get her blog, also AKA the New Mexico Milkmaid. Uh, Tara, welcome to the program.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
1: So uh, why would somebody go to your website?
0: So what you could find on my website is uh, all about dairy sustainability. So dairy's impact on the environment.
1: And what are people misunderstanding about that? I mean, that's, I think your main, isn't that your main crucible to carry, which is that there's a lot of weird shit flying around, around farming, <laughs> dairy farming and beef and cattle. And you know, what, what's your perspective?
0: Yeah, there is a ton of misinformation out there. So um, I'm actually a fifth generation dairy farmer. So I now dairy farm with my husband and his family. But I got my degree in environmental science, and I've been an environmental scientist for dairy farms across the Southwest for about the last twelve years. And what I was seeing was a ton of misinformation online that just didn't line up with what I was seeing in real life on dairy farms. And so me I started example sharing. of what
1: mis- uh, like a- this- Top three common misconceptions?
0: I would say that cattle are the largest contributor to climate change. I see that a ton, like that headline, that kind of like soundbite a lot. Uh, I see a lot of misinformation around milk and, um, you know, what's in it, what's not in it when it's on the grocery store shelf. Um, And just some, you know, general conversation around organic versus conventional and and all of those kind of topics. So it's very broad. uh, But at the end of the day, just kind of trying to set some truths out there.
1: Let's start with the uh, CO2 production by cows, which always goes to cows farting, which was never the case. It's always been cows burping, right? It's always been stomach. Um, What is the misconception there?
0: Yeah. So actually, it's not CO2 either. It's methane that is.
1: Yeah, that they're burping.
0: Yes. And um, so actually, Animal agriculture, this includes dairy, beef, accounts for less than 4% of our total greenhouse gases here in the United States. And actually dairy has set the goal to be carbon neutral or better by 2050. And right now we're on track to meet that goal. And I think when people hear those numbers alone, they're pretty surprised because it's just a little bit different than what they've seen online or some of the headlines.
1: As always, you know, the stuff that goes viral on social media is never the facts or, for instance, what you would say. It's always what somebody says you said or someone says the facts are, and it sounds good, and therefore that goes viral. It's just uncanny how how awful the level of sophistication is uh, in the country now because of social media. It it promotes these these bites, these ideas. Oh cows farting creates the, you know, methane, blah, 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 gonna to contribute to the, the greenhouse gases. It just sounds good, it catches on, and then it's in people's head. And even when you tell them the truth, they'll come back around a month later and they'll have the old misconception in their head
0: still. It's wild. I... I have to agree with you. I just heard a micro podcast where he said sound bites are the killer of conversation. And I had to agree with that, that people, it just sticks in their head, those, those really quick hits. And it's hard to go back and you can have all the data, all the research, all the proof. And it's hard to get one single like sentence out of people's minds.
1: That was number one. Number two was what's in milk, right? So people throw estrogen in milk and all kinds of antibiotics in milk. What's the reality?
0: Yeah. The reality is that every single tanker of milk that leaves my farm or any farm across the country is actually tested at the parts per trillion, um, for antibiotics, for quality, for a number of different things. Um, and so if it came back positive for anything, uh, we have to dump the milk and we actually have to pay for it. And it's tested again at the plant. It has randomized samples on the grocery store shelf. It's honestly one of the most tested regulated foods in the entire country. And it's actually really cool to see everything that goes on behind the scenes in order to have all those checks and balances in place to make sure that nothing like antibiotics ends up in the shelf, in milk on the shelf.
1: What's uh, also telling is, you know, milk gets gets in the crosshairs, but no one ever mentions butter or cheese. magically (laughs) Magically, those products don't have these things that are in the milk that creates the products. Yeah, it's just so, it's so nutty. And then the third was uh, organic and what those things mean. Is that what I, did I catch that? Yeah,
0: that's another big one that I get asked a lot about. And I think what surprises people is organic is actually a farming practice. So it it talks about how we farm different products on the farm. It's not necessarily like a health standard or um, I think just people assume it means something different, but it really is about how we're doing things on farm um, without, you know, the nutritional differences are not a significant difference at the end product. Although I'm a huge um, advocate for food choice, no matter what you choose, I just want people to feel good about no matter what they're choosing, what's within their budget, know that they can feel that it's safe, healthy, and within their budget.
1: Do you, so you're just doing, what? what's the spectrum of in dairy farming? In other words, do you also produce beef at some point during the, you know, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, we do. Um, our dairy cows um, ultimately go for beef as well. I think that that's actually a really important part of our sustainability story because we are able to produce milk, cheese, butter, all of those things. And at the end, we're able to produce beef. Um, and, you know, <laughs> it's not your black Angus. It's not going to be necessarily what people love to get at their steakhouse, but it's an important piece of our food system. Um, and it's actually I we eat all of our own beef right in our home um, home home. Home-raised beef, uh, and so yeah, that is ultimately what happens to dairy cows as well.
1: And what what about the? So let's go drill into the beef a little bit because that's my favorite topic. Sure. Um, uh, you know, grass-fed versus other kinds of what? What is your feeling about these sorts of rearing practices of the of the meat source?
0: Yeah. So something that would probably surprise people is most of our beef cattle in the country start out on grassland. Like the majority, most uh, beef and cattle ranches are small mom, mom and pop kind of is what you think of. There's not like these huge, massive, uh, ranches like people typically think about. And those cattle are out on pasture. Uh, they do all like a large percentage of our beef ultimately goes then to a feedlot to then be finished and processed. Um, but I think that there's room in our food system for all the different choices. Um, I think it goes back to like grain finish doesn't mean bad. Like those cattle play an important role on those grasslands, those ecosystems out grazing before they get to the feedlot. Uh,
1: people also, I guess I'm going to put a number fourth. I'm going to bet on your sort of list of, uh, Know if it's misconceptions or or sort of things that are sort of tossed your way, I'm sure, is the sort of uh, the big farming, the the big agriculture, and what the impact of that is, and how that it's such a um, a, a um, factory type farming. Talk to me about that.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that is another big one. Oh, the word factory farming just it, it, it irks me a little bit every time I hear it. Um, so by all like I think it's a word that came around from, you know, kind of animal activists and by all standards, um, I bet most animal activists would say that we are a factory farm. We're a large dairy farm and I live about 100 steps from my milking barn, <laughs> like could not be closer to my dairy farm, um, drink the same water as our cows. Like it literally comes from the same tank, goes to our house and some goes. To theirs. So uh size does not mean big. Big does not mean bad. You know, small does not mean great. Like there is it all farmers are working towards better animal welfare practices, taking care of their land, their natural resources. I think that's a a very obvious thing when you really get down and talk with farmers.
1: Is, is there such a thing as too big? Or is I I guess the the thing that the average person that's not a farmer would think about. These so-called factory farms, a that factory means impersonal, big, detached from any human sort of, you know, some heart involved, invested in the in the uh, practices of the farming. Are there things like that out there? Do you have concerns where things are consolidated so much where it's like, whoa, maybe they are losing track of the things I value?
0: I have not seen that in agriculture. I feel like overall, you know, I obviously spend a lot of time with dairy farmers across the country. And um, at the root of everything they do is caring for their cows. I don't think you get into dairy farming because you love cows and you love being a part of the land. You love being a part of being able to raise cattle, similar with uh, cattle ranchers. Uh, I just think that if people had the opportunity to come out to a farm and actually talk with a farmer, it would really change their impression of what it means and, and what the size means. Um, there's really cool things that happen on a dairy farm. Like our cows have a nutritionist that plans all of their meals, depending on what stage of life they're in. Uh, Mm -hmm. they have a vet that comes once a week. There's we have a lot of specialists helping us make different decisions throughout the dairy. And there's a lot of hands on care that goes into caring for cattle, no matter what your size is.
1: And when, when your uh, cattle goes for, a, you use a little euphemistic term, uh, the slaughtering essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Not so nice, never word. Um, <laughs> do you have any? I, I've always thought it was really important to try to use every piece of the animal. Uh, And I'm wondering if you have any say over that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. um, Cattle. A lot of time when people think about any type of cattle, whether it's dairy cows or beef cattle, they think about the end product of just beef, but there is literally millions of other things that cattle get turned into. And so I think using every single piece of the animal is important. I mean, into our medicines, um, you know, clothing, there's exponential amount of things that we are using cattle for. It's not just beef. It's pretty hard to not have something in your home that doesn't have an animal product in it somewhere because of how much we use every bit of the animal.
1: Is there any, I, I want to drill into the excesses on the people that come after you. Is, yeah. is there any criticism that you think that sting or you feel like, oh, that's, there's something in that, or we should do that better. Is, there, is it ever helped to have the scrutiny or is there anything they've said that you thought was pertinent?
0: Oh, I think there's always room for improvement. I think when people actually come to the table and want to have conversations with us about how to make things better, we are more than willing to listen. Um, I actually had a really cool story with the man who comes in and he trims our cows hooves. They have to get like basically a pedicure. And he was saying how some research had been done because of conversations, um, with some university people that had concerns about cattle being kind of like nervous to go in and get their hooves trimmed. Um, and so they changed their management practices where the cattle, Cattle follow each other into the shoot. So they're always their herd animals. So they want to be with other animals. And um, he said it's made it so much less stressful, hard on him. Like it's just so much easier they follow the other cattle in. Such a simple little thing, but that's a big deal on our dairy. It's a big deal for, you know, his profession. Um and so there's absolutely little tiny things that we're learning all the time where we can make. Changes and make things run smoother, um, honestly, the healthier and more comfortable a cow is, the more milk she produces. so her comfort is absolutely top priority on the farm
1: and so the 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 other the other side of what I'm thinking about when I think about the criticism is where, where is this coming from I mean I see so much bullshit these days on every front, and you know I have my own sort of um have you ever heard of gelman's amnesia? Gelman amnesia, Gelman, Dr. Gelman was a famous physicist that would pick up the paper every day. And whenever he'd see a story on physics, he'd go, oh, my God, they don't know what they're talking about. Where do they get these ideas from? What's going on? And then he'd go on to read the rest of the paper and assume they were getting that right. The complex international relations, the policy issues. Of course, they're getting it all wrong. Yeah. And so where is this coming from? Why are they getting it so wrong? How are they getting it so wrong? Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I kind of call it like the Global anti-meat narrative that's kind of out there. That there is, you know, this push that like you know beef and cattle are bad for the environment. Um, you know, you if you really want to get into the weeds of it, like livestock's long shadow was a big part of it. Was a study released by the UN that ultimately got shown had a lot of issues with how the. You know, the different um, methods were used, how they were using it to calculate what cattle's impact on the environment was. Um, They have since released a new study, but obviously that one hasn't made the headlines quite like uh, Cattle's Long Shadow has. Um, but I feel like there is a shift happening. I think ever since COVID people kind of took pause and wondered where their food came from, how it got to them, what went into making it. And I have noticed in the last three years, this massive shift of people being more curious than ever about where their food comes from and actually wanting to talk to the farmers to learn more about it. And I'm so hopeful for that and excited about that.
1: Yeah. I, I put that, I don't know how, how big that movement is, but I, I feel like there's a more there is a certainly it's certainly a population that's more that is interested in what I would call conscious eating, conscious consumption. Both from the standpoint of their carbohydrate intake, you know, what fats are good and bad, and meats and meat quality and dairy quality and what's what's going on there also enters the consciousness when you when you start going down that path. <laughs> People are always bugging me for health advice. Well, today I'm going to give you some. I'm excited to introduce our sponsor Wild Health, founded by two ER physicians. Wild Health takes a proactive preventative approach to healthcare. It's what we call precision medicine. They use genetics, biometrics, lifestyle data to get you functioning at your best. Whether you have specific goals like body composition, improved energy, whatever it might be, they tailor a plan for you. To help you implement your individualized care plan, Wild Health pairs each person with a care team consisting of a board-certified precision medicine physician and accredited health coach. And the results speak for themselves, Wild Health patients have seen a whopping 69% reduction in inflammatory markers, 47% improvement of diabetic markers, 58% reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, and many other outcomes, of course. This is wellness rather than sick care. Wild Health addresses causes of health problems. Plus, Wild Health is fully virtual via telemedicine and it's available everywhere in the U.S. Of course, as a physician, I'm interested in changing people's health behaviors for the better, and I'm excited to see what Wild Health can do for our listeners. Wild Health is generously extending Dr. Drew listeners 20% off the cost of membership with code DREW, head over to wildhealth.com slash drew and use code drew at checkout. Make this commitment to yourself and start taking control of your health today at wild health, One word, wildhealth.com slash drew. But I'm still wondering <laughs> the, these movements that are so disconnected from reality are so troubling for me. Um, yeah, well, let me ask it this way what what's the worst thing they' they've done to you guys? What's the worst thing they've sort of tried to do or what has have they had direct impact on your life or your business?
0: um they have had some direct impact um activists have had you know played different roles um you know we've had dear friends that have had you know they've found activists you know undercover filming things um instigating things on their farms. Um, so we do have to be careful and conscious of that. Um, like what?
1: Like what, what would they do? What would there be their problem? What would they they be instigating?
0: Um, well, and it just depends on the case, but we've just seen, you know, different things where they've gone on farm and tried to get these like, quote unquote, undercover videos. And will go to pretty extreme lengths in order to capture the footage that they want to get to be able to air. Um, and so I would say like, as far as physical threats, like that would be the biggest. And then I would say it's just, you know, the overall push for different policies, you know, different decision-making. When you think about like our nutritional guidelines in this country, you know, there's a you can still see, um, a push for different like plant-based options. Um, you know, we see schools that are taking, you know, meat and milk off the menu, um, which, you know, obviously as a dairy farmer, I find that concerning, but also as a mother, I can find that concerning that we're going to be taking off high quality nutrient dense foods off the menu. Like that never feels like a good idea to, for me.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with that. I I am a, a fan of protein, a fan of the high, highest quality protein and. In- i my, humbly, I'm not sure we get better than beef out there. I mean, that's you know, it, here's the extraordinary thing. I, you know, if you presented it as we've come up with a new process where this extraordinary this insight, this extraordinary scientific finding, allows us t- to take low quality plant product and grass and turn it into a high quality protein for human consumption <laughs> that can literally change health. It's like, what is it? What is that? Yeah, God took care of it. Nature took care of it for you. And uh, in history, in the relationship with these domesticated animals is how we were able to get there. But it was done by nature, which is, again, isn't that the highest uh, sort of cry that people want nature and things natural? Speaking of natural, uh, that's another, you know, organic and natural are words that are in, you know, all over foods. Uh, They seem to me to be almost exclusively marketing instruments. Mm -hmm. But uh, do they mean anything to you?
0: Yeah. Labels are such a hard one. We actually talk about this a lot on our podcast. Discover Ag labels are one of those things that you can't live with them and you can't live without them. Right. Like people are looking for labels. They want to see labels, but labels don't always mean what they think they do. Like natural is not regulated at all. It it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, I always joke that like arsenic is natural. Like there's lots of really terrible things. Amanita
1: phylloides is natural. You lick it, it's a mushroom. If you lick it, you'll be dead in about three hours. That's natural. That, yes. you know, the, the that nature puts those things to protect the plants and sometimes the animals, yeah that's why they have those chemicals developed uh and, and, and you know and then there's all natural or hundred percent natural. you can slap that on anything i could, I could put that on my coffee cup and and it would fly It just it's just i don't think that, is there any regulation on those sorts of labels?
0: No, those ones are not regulated. And then there's also labels that are frustrating, like in animal products, um, like in the poultry side of things that say like, um, no antibiotics used ever. Well, there's no antibiotics used in any poultry on any (laughs) animals in the United States. So again, that label, but if people are looking for it, I can see the marketing behind it. They want to put it on there, but it's misleading then for people to think like, oh, so if it doesn't have that label, you know, then, then it's not as good. Um, and so it's extremely confusing for the consumer. I can't imagine going into the grocery store, not knowing about agriculture and the farming practices and just kind of feeling overwhelmed by all the labels in the grocery store.
1: Well, you just ignore natural. just to...
0: Yeah, you just ignore, just ignore natural.
1: natural. But let's talk about organic. What's going on with that one?
0: Yeah, so organic, I mentioned, is a, is actually a farming practice. So I'll talk about dairy since that's my background. But there's differences of what we do on the farm for whether you're organic or not. So if you're organic, um, it means that you are feeding organic feed and cattle are grazing for so many days out of the year. Kind of depends on where you're at, what your climate's like. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean pesticide free. Um, it has to be quote unquote natural pesticides and fertilizers. Um, and so there's just some differences there of what that actually means. The end product, though, is very similar. Obviously, milk, the nutritional differences is not significant, has the same amount of protein, calcium, all of those good things. So, again, you know, that food food choice. If, if those farming practices are really important to you, then absolutely choose organic. If you don't want, you know, if that doesn't matter as much to you, then conventional is just as safe and healthy.
1: So I'm a little confused. So organic, is that regulated and has certain criteria you have to follow? And that's really in the farming practices, not in what's going into the container, right?
0: Correct. So it's regulated by the USDA and you have to follow all of these different farming practices. Um, But like ultimately, if you compare the two milks nutritionally, they're similar.
1: I think. I think when people the consumer thinks about organic, they're they're wanting to avoid sort of so-called unnatural or chemicals in their food. Um, Is there any concern? Let's just stay with insecticides for a second in non-organic farming and insecticides.
0: Yeah. So the difference again, is whether you're using synthetic fertilizer, you know, pesticides, all of those things, or, you know, the natural approved list from the organic, uh, from the USDA organics list. That is the main difference. Um, also within organics, you cannot use GMOs. So if that's an important thing for you, then organic would be the choice there. So there's just a number of different criteria that kind of fall within there um, of how, and then the grazing cattle, the, the cattle must graze for a certain amount of uh, I think the what year. I'm
1: asking though would you have any concerns in having non-organic products? Oh, milk?
0: sorry, I misunderstood your question. No, yeah. I would not. I personally choose the cheapest milk on the shelf.
1: Yeah. And and insecticides over the years have like there've been issues uh how are we protecting ourselves from that sort of thing today? And and not only that, but I I guess well, we'll talk about GMOs in a second, but insecticides, go ahead with that.
0: Okay. Yes. So um, this is not my area of uh, expertise, but um, it really would surprise people. They came out and saw how much we actually use. It is a very small amount per acre, um, just a little bit. We mix it with water. And so if you ever see like a field being sprayed, that is not the spray of all of the like quote unquote chemicals. Um, A majority of that is actually just water that we mix in to dilute the product and then ultimately spray over the field.
1: And GMOs, any concerns about that? What about the the over over concern people have i I, you know i i just i'm someone let me just you know turn over my cards i was involved in the ecology movement in the 70s which is really the same thing as the climate movement today and we were predicting the end of the world like every ecology movement uh it was 1976 and the end of the world was coming uh there was going to be a an ice age number one uh for sure for sure uh, number two, acid rain was going to destroy uh, agriculture in the East. Uh, and number three, the, oh, there were four things. So number three was no way to avoid massive famine. Impossible. Impossible. And number four, uh, we're running out of uh, hydrocarbons. Should be done in seven years. That was it. We were There was a categorical math behind everything we said. It was the way of the world and it has given me a little bit of a perspective on the excesses of today's uh, climate um, mm, uh, alarmists. I'm not saying the climate doesn't exist. It's the alarmist part that I was a part of that I know goes to excess very easily, and it's virtually impossible mathematically to really predict these things to the point that you should or should not be alarmed. It's uh, almost impossible. But when the GMOs came along... That was the end of our prediction of famine that literally saved hundreds and probably probably a billion lives. Um, So that was pretty impressive to me. Um, Should we have concerns about GMOs?
0: Yeah. So I'm pretty pro GMO, um, because I agree with you. I think that the good it has done in our world and, um, how it has propelled us forward. I mean, every year we're asking farmers to do more with less. I mean, we're losing acres and acres of farmland every year here in this country. We want to be using less water. I'm out in the West. I'm in New Mexico. So we have very scarce resources of water. I want to use every tool in our toolbox in order to be able to produce more food with less. And ultimately that's, a benefit to the environment as well. If I can use less land to produce more yeah. while still replenishing the nutrients in our soil, then we have more room that can, for land that can go into conservation. I mean, agriculture, if you really think about it in Im- improving, like the technology in agriculture is one of the safeguards of having conservation. If we can use less la- ag land, we can have more land in conservation.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe, I'm just extrapolating and maybe other countries less likely to destroy rainforests is to expand agland maybe because they don't need as much maybe um as you think about other uh farming practices you know that you have seen are there is there anything out there that concerns you anything from our uh from farming that brings us our food sources i mean people point at chicken farming and things like that are there things that bother you
0: I actually am maybe I'm an optimist, but I'm really excited about where agriculture is headed. There's some really cool things happening. I think one of the most positive things about this green movement is actually the research that's going into ag right now, the money that is being put into ag. You know, ag notoriously receives less funding than other sectors for research and for technology development. And so with just these climate smart practices being implemented, we are seeing a plethora of research and information and data to really support the decisions we're making. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see just really cool things happening. We talked about methane at the beginning, the things I'm seeing coming down the pipeline for dairy farmers to reduce their methane, just, you know, really creative ways that people are coming up with to kind of um, help us move the needle on uh, having an impact positively towards the environment.
1: Isn't that a pretty simple problem to solve? Isn't it just you put something in the grass or the feed or something? Isn't there just like essentially make them burp less, give them charcoal or something? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. like
0: cool? I mean, basically, that's what we've been doing for decades um, because the less cattle burp, the more meat or milk they're producing. They're essentially, I mean, a burp is a waste of energy. It's basically them expelling energy. And so everything that we're working towards is feed efficiency. That's one of the things we want them to utilize the feed that we're feeding them. Um, it is not cheap to feed a dairy cow or a beef cow as you can imagine. And so having feed efficiency is important. And so, yes, there are lots of interesting things um, like seaweed is one of the things being researched right now to add into a cow- cow's diet that can reduce methane by as much as 95%
1: as you got you so you're an environmental scientist what what did you imagine your career would be
0: Well, I did grow up on a dairy farm, but when I got my degree, I did not think I was going to come back to the dairy farm. I felt like I was kind of a classic rural kid that was like, I'm going to the big city and I'm never coming back. (laughs) And then I met my husband and ultimately moved to his family's dairy farm. And then it kind of just became a very natural fit. Um, When I was going through college, there was a lot of regulations being put in place in New Mexico around dairy farmers and dairy farm, like their permits and um, water usage and so those are obviously like formative years of my life. And I felt like one of the issues was, is that the farmers and the environmental scientists were kind of talking two different languages. They were saying mm-hmm. the same thing, but they weren't mm-hmm. communicating with each other well. And I thought if I could get a degree in environmental science and, you know, growing up on a dairy farm, be kind of the liaison between the two. Uh, and so that is what I've done for the last 12 years is I have clients that are dairy farmers and I assist them with, you know, their permitting and regulations at the state and federal level
1: do you have any successes that you sort of are proud of that you want to point at?
0: I think that I am overall proud of a lot of different projects. You know, one of the things that I always tried to go with my, to my farmers with was you don't have to do everything and you don't have to do it all this year, but let's every year come up with one to two things that we can make improvements on. What can we do that would just get us that much more water efficient? What can we do that would improve soil health? Like let's just pick one thing each year. And a lot of times what I found is in sustainability, we want these big, huge projects, you know, that really like that somebody in the news would write home about that would share about a headline and really sustainability is making small changes every single day that have a big impact. Um, yeah. Dairies across the United States actually recycle a single gallon of water up to five times on their farm. It's not that exciting as a headline, but it's actually really cool when you think about it, all the ways they're able to utilize a single gallon of water and, and that's management that? practices. How so
1: it five times
0: this is really cool. So the first time they use it to cool the milk because milk comes out a hundred degrees and groundwater is typically at about 55 degrees. So they use it to cool the milk. They'll use that same water to clean the equipment. They'll take that water to flush out the back of the barn. Uh, they'll use that water to then flush the lanes where the cows stand and collects manure. And then we collect all of our, that water along with all of our rainwater. And we ultimately apply it out onto our crops, which grow feed for our cattle.
1: Does some of that uh, sort of waste byproduct help with the soil health?
0: Yes. So one of the best things to improve soil health is organic matter. And one thing that has a lot of organic matter is cow manure.
1: Yeah. If people don't understand that, that's, you know, nitrogenous waste and nitrogen is good for the soil, right?
0: Yeah. And just applying it at agronomic rates. So your crops are taking up and your soil is taking up exactly what it needs. Um, And that way you're not over applying those nutrients as well, kind of keeping that balance in play. I'm John Glover,
1: Emmy Award-winning researcher John Glover, and I'm Marissa Pinson,
0: critically unacclaimed TV writer Marissa Pinson, and we're the hosts of the new podcast On Brand with John and Marissa. Join us every week for an exploration of the world's most interesting and iconic brands like Walmart. Do they still have the old people who say welcome to Walmart? No, they got rid of them. So you just want more old people in the store? I
1: want every staff member to be over 90 and Heinz.
0: Heinz. 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 I say Heinz. <laughs> like I'm a German dictator.
1: And while you learn about these legendary brands, you'll also learn a bit about us. Hey John, do you still sleep in shoes? <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's probably, I would say probably three times a year I fall asleep in shoes.
1: You told me the thing that you should never um, look under a Costco chicken.
0: Well, I don't think you should ever look under a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so tune in every Wednesday for a brand new episode of On Brand with John and Marissa. Available May 24th wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm. See you there.
1: Have you guys gotten some of the water that uh, came to the West Coast?
0: Unfortunately, we have not. We are pretty Oof. dry out in New Mexico, but we're hopeful that you know spring is on its way, and maybe we'll get some rains this summer.
1: I mean, New Mexico is desert.
0: Desert.
1: are <laughs> trying to dairy farm in the desert. Uh, how, how do you get your water? Is it Colorado River or where, where does it come from?
0: We are 100% groundwater. Um, that is, is yeah, it's...
1: groundwater. <laughs> you have to <laughs> drill into the Earth's core.
0: Yeah, we're on the Okalala Aquifer. So that is where we get our water, but we are very dry. I think we get less than 10 inches a year now. Um, but the cows love it. Cows love dry climate. Um, and so they quite enjoy it. Um, but yes, uh, a lot of the things that we're doing on our farm actually are figuring out ways to grow crops with less water. So drought tolerant crops, crops that just don't need as much water in order to grow. Um, and we've been really experimenting with that over the last about five years, trying different varieties, different crops. Um, Some have been successes and some have not.
1: I I have a silly question and it it really, it probably only loosely pertains to your kind of farming, but uh, you may know the answer to this for me just because I've always been curious when I fly over the country, I always see these, you know, the, the farm farmlands that are growing products, you know, food, growing plant products and the circles, see yeah. the circles all over the country. Is that because that's where they drilled into the groundwater right in the center there and just, or is it just, that's just their source? in the
0: middle? Yeah. Great question. So yeah, those are called center pivots and it's a pretty popular way of irrigating crops. And the reason it's in a circle is because it is a giant sprinkler that goes around in a circle. So it has a center point in it. it but, but I, yeah, the water.
1: I've seen them, but I just wondered what, why, why the water source in the middle, is that just where it pipes in or is there actually a well there that they're pulling out of?
0: So both. Sometimes that's just where it pipes in. You can have wells all over the place. You can have more than one well going to those fields if you have wells that aren't producing enough. Um, or sometimes there is a well there in the center. But essentially, that is how the center pivot is set up with that center you know, pivot. The outside yeah. turns faster. The inside turns a little slower so that they're getting even water distribution across.
1: That's the mostly in the west, right? That's mostly where I see that kind of thing because they have enough water elsewhere, right? Or they can get rain in addition to irrigation.
0: Yeah. So that would be the difference between irrigated cropland and dry land. So if you get enough rain, you have what's called dry land farming, where you just get water from, you know, the sky precipitation. Um, and then out West where you see those center pivots, those are irrigated cropland. So w- we're using water in order to water those crops.
1: Are you part of any, you know, as you think about the, I, I'm just guessing each kind of farming has their own challenges. You know, water obviously is everybody's in the West anyway. Um, Are you part of a lobby group? Do you you have to mobilize? Do you have to be part of, you know, in other words, do you guys have to defend yourselves? How, How does that work?
0: Yeah. Good question. Um, so we have a couple of different organizations in New Mexico. We have a grassroots organization that we're a part of. Um, but we also sell our milk to a co-op. So we co-op our milk together. Um, and being a part of a co-op can be really great because then you are a part of a larger group that, you know, is supporting each other, keeping kind of your finger on the pulse of things. And then there's a few different organizations that we're a part of then beyond that on a national level that can lobby for us. Um, you know, there's, about 37,000 dairy farm families across the country. So getting us kind of all together is an important piece of this. Cause I mean, you know, 98% of us are just family farms owned and operated. So kind of getting together um, gives us a little bit bigger voice and, and kind of has our, you know, concerns heard.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm just thinking about the, uh, the voices that are aligned against you. what, 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 is that just all the climate extremists or where where is that coming from or is there a history there that we can look at and go oh that's where that came from
0: So there is definitely a little bit of a history. Um, You know, there are animal activists out there that just truly believe we should not have animal protein or animal products in our diet. Um, And I think a lot of the movement can be traced back to them. I would say that kind of from the research I've done, I've seen a definite connection that um, animal activists saw a link with climate activists that they could kind of team up, like hitch, you know, their cart to their wagon to their horse and Mm -hmm. um, kind of propel that forward. And so I think there are some ties there. Um, And obviously I I believe that each person should have their own food choice. If you choose not to eat animal proteins, I just don't think other people should make that decision for other people.
1: Yeah. I I mean, particularly, boy, when I think about my elderly patients, you know, the protein requirements go way up and it's not easy. I I can't think of a single way I can get, get by without animal products. I guess I could use nuts, some of some of it, but, I mean, I'm always recommending dairy and meat and just and getting them to keep the protein up to where they need it is extremely difficult. People don't understand this. And that—that that is the number, you know, as you get into your advanced years, falls are your number one risk and debilitation is your number one source of falls. And debilitation is very much hooked to your nutritional, your protein intake, not just your nutritional intake, your protein intake and people that don't. As you get older, you don't really register thirst and hunger that well either. And so, to try to sit and eat plant products all day—it's almost laughable to me. I've never seen an, you know, someone in their 80s and 90s pull that off. So, uh, all of our great concern about the elderly to protect them against COVID—why uh, don't we? Have, don't there's no consistency to any of our ridiculous sort of panics? Uh, why aren't they showing the same concern here?
0: Yeah. And I feel like on the flip side of the coin, the same with children, like we talked about, New York is removing, and I think LA as well, uh, school districts are, you know, having like a meatless Monday or different things. And I feel like with kids as well, especially kids that, you know, are underprivileged children or children who aren't getting the nutrients that they need, whether, you know, we have you know, picky eaters and different, just, we have so many different things. And I feel like dairy is often a food source that they love and that gives them that nutrients. Um, you know, we have a country that is deficient in iron, calcium, and protein. And when you talk about take removing dairy and meat, you're talking about our primary sources of those three things. Uh, and so it is very concerning about what that will do like to people's health long-term. Um, if we're already starting it at such an early age of restricting those nutrient dense foods.
1: Now, the other source that I like of protein is eggs. And when I think about, uh, and obviously we're talking about chicken, hens, eggs, uh, I think of that as dairy. Is that hooked in with what you do at all? (laughs)
0: No, it's not. I don't know why people associate eggs with dairy. You know why? Because it's why. where it
1: is. In the, it's, in yes. the, it's in the same cabinet as the milk uh, in the grocery store.
0: Yes, you're right. I have yeah. never produced an egg in my life, so I okay. do not have right. eggs on my farm. Um, no, totally separate processes, but yes, at the same place in the grocery store.
1: Are, are they, though escaping some of this heat somehow i don't i don't feel like i'm i certainly hear about chicken farming for meat but i don't hear about it so much for eggs because uh, like, there is a free range option out there that people can use is, is are they getting heat also
0: I feel like every animal protein gets a little bit of heat at varying degrees. I think um, I uh, my podcast partner is a cattle rancher, and we often joke that I feel like dairy gets the worst of it. I'm not exactly sure why, but dairy is definitely like. Why would that be? What
1: what is it? What is it they point at?
0: I don't know. I always wonder if it's sometimes dairy's proximity to cities. A lot of times um, cattle ranches are further out in the country. They're further out in really rural places, whereas dairies tend to be a little bit closer to city centers because of the idea of like moving product and having milk readily available in grocery stores. And so I always wonder if there's some kind of connection there. Do people pass by dairy farms more? So they're they're questioning that. Or is, or is um, it the
1: containment, you know, that the, you know, they are in confinement out and c- c- cattle being in the milking process being containing and, you know, cruel is the word that comes out. But um, talk to me about that.
0: Yeah, that is, I was going to say that you, so you see cattle then in pens, um, we have our cattle, it's called open lots. So they're in large open pens with big shades and wind breaks. Um, New Mexico's climate is pretty mild. We don't have too severe of winters, uh, depend- well where we're at and not too hot of summers. And so the cattle actually go to the barn two times a day. And when they're milked, it takes about eight minutes each time. So they're milked about 16 minutes each day. Um, it's really cool to see, uh, each pen where they're placed on the dairy depends on what that cow needs. So older cows are closer to the barn, so They don't have to walk as far. Younger cows are further away so that they can travel a distance. Um, and then you can see the cows. I mean, you can set your watch by cows. They will line up at the back of the pen when it's their time. They're very much creatures of habit. Um, keeping the barn really peaceful and quiet is Important so that when they come in, they feel comfortable. You just don't want anything different. Um, if you, if I were to bring you into our barn, they would actually stop and smell you, knowing that you're a different person. You're not their usual person that would be in the barn. Um, so just very routine and just keeping that structure for them is super important for keeping them calm and comfortable.
1: I wonder if there's ever going to be a common ground with some of the extremists, I, I, and they're certainly they're welcome to choose, you know, and and they're they're certainly health advocates for plant based. Nutrition as well. And I, I understand it. I just think when the day is done, that's you, you have to have these animal products and, and the benefits are substantial. Uh, I, I, and again, it depends on people's biology. Right. Yeah. Um, but personally, boy, I, I'd be in big trouble without, without dairy and meat. I'd be in big, big trouble.
0: Yeah, I feel similarly, you were talking about, you know, that God, that nature made this cow uh, to convert plants that we can't eat into a food source that we can Um, and cattle. Not just a food
1: source, an extremely
0: high quality (laughs) food source, multiple (laughs) high quality food sources. That (laughs) was, um, they... Ruminant animals are the only animal that can turn incomplete protein and actually upcycle protein. They take sixty yeah. grams of incomplete protein and turn it into a hundred grams of complete protein. That's really incredible when you think about the science behind that. The enzymes in their stomach are able to do that.
1: Yeah, that, that's uh, we are we are we should be thanking God, thanking nature. It's it's a miracle and it's lucky. I, I don't think the human, um, I don't. Sometimes I think people that are, you know, taking aim at the food source don't like the fact that there's so many humans around, but there certainly would not be so many humans around if we didn't have these sources. That is for sure. Well, are there things that keep you up at night now? Are there things that uh, trouble you? Are you worried about stuff? Are you, you know, when you do your podcast, are there, you know, controversies that you guys commonly come upon?
0: Yeah. So on Discover Ag, actually every week we cover the top three trending news articles in the ag and food space. Um, and there is, as you know, the push last week we talked about IKEA has choosing to remove dairy from their menus um, in order to meet their climate goals. And you know things like that are frustrating. I wish we could team up with IKEA and say like we've set climate goals similar to yours. Like let's let's team up and work together to you know solve this problem um, and work towards a solution. Uh, and so there is things that definitely worry me with the anti like meat um, push. Uh, but I think ultimately, as I said, I think there's still exciting things happening. There's people I like to call them food curious people who are wanting to know more about their food and. And that's why I choose to share online. That's why we have Discover Ag. The podcast is hopefully to give more factual information to people that want it.
1: Let, let me ask this. Just, I'm curious about it because I'm a consumer. Is there any um, anything better than the cow, than the beef? Uh, in, in other words, um, is that the most efficient way to get that uh, protein upgrade? Because I eat a lot of bison
0: mm-hmm. and I hear they're
1: very hard to farm <laughs> or to, to contain. Yes. Um, talk to me about that.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think animal protein across the board, wherever you're getting that, if you are, get, you know, getting wild game, if you're hunting yourself, if you're getting beef, if bison, um, I know is a popular choice. Yes, I've heard they're very hard to farm or ranch. I'm not exactly sure. Sh- I would say ranching. Um, ranch, you have they to-
1: get out of everything I hear. Yes. I was doing it and he like I think you said he piled up like um, the uh, cargo, you know, the big cargo units that are sit on trucks on 18 wheelers. And he put them too high, you know, one on top of each other. And the bison were still able to jump on top. Like they're big. No, people don't realize they jump like crazy. So that's nutty.
0: Yeah. Considering that cattle can be contained with like, you know, a very small fence, bison are a completely different, you know, animal of being able to contain them. But, um, you know, and you mentioned eggs, I'm a big fan of eggs. I love eggs for breakfast. So I think that all of those protein sources are so incredible. And I think we live in a country where we are beyond lucky to be able to have all of those options. Um, and actually at a pretty affordable price compared to our income. Um, and so those are, that's positive things for, you know, animal ag in the beef space. Um, we produce about 18% of the world's beef with significantly less cattle. So we have a smaller percentage. So we're producing more beef than like our cattle numbers, which is amazing. Like there's some just exciting things happening. Last Days, a new podcast exploring the biggest icons in pop culture taken too soon, and what led to their untimely deaths. It seemed like he was on the cusp of this sort of demise. The juxtaposition between that and the onstage persona that caught us all off guard. Conspiracy
1: theories, shocking details, and untold heartbreak. Hosts Jason and Derek unpack the stories behind each
0: star's demise. This wasn't a necessarily ghastly presentation of gory details. It was a media blowback, cues the corner, basically clout chasing. Larger than life, bigger in death. Last days,
1: available wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I, I, I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time, and I finally, I'm finally glad we got a chance to finally um, get together. Is there anything I left out? Anything else that you wanted people to know about about what is it you're doing? Uh, again, it is, I'm going to get your, your acronym, right. It's the milk, wait, wait, me- New Mexico milkmaid. <laughs> yes. milk
0: that was my, that was my original Instagram handle. If you want to follow me now, I'm just at Tara on Instagram, and you can always check out our podcast, discover ag, where again, we covered, you know, topics in ag and food. Um, but yeah, I'm excited. I got to come on and share with you today. Thanks for having me.
1: You sure nothing else we need to get into? Do we cover pretty much everything? I, I feel like we covered I'm, a
0: lot of ground.
1: Yeah, it's all stuff I'm curious about. And and I'm I'm kind of uh, and I'll you know, just turning over the cards, I'm a little angry when I think about what you're up against and the lack of um I, I come at it from the my profession, which is the lack of understanding of the diversity of people's needs for nutrition and the different nutritional needs across the lifespan and the fact that you know other people want to force how you nourish your family and your children is just deeply offensive to me. Uh, And I, and by the way, at the same time, I'm sympathetic as, as are you that animals need to be treated with respect and done, you know, and all these things we've been talking about is uh, you know, certainly I, I worry about animal suffering for sure, but there are ways to mitigate that as you pointed out. Uh, the other issue is that this is a symbiotic relationship we have with these animals we use as food sources. They would not exist, certainly not in the numbers that they do, were it not for us. They they wouldn't be around. They they would have been a small niche in some some sort of uh, natural environment. And people argue, okay, well that's that's an That's they prefer that. Okay, I, I get it. But the fact is that we have this wonderful. We this wonderful natural process that we take advantage of that's allowed the human being to to flourish and why we would condemn that. I, I'm with you about just making it better, making it more humane, making it more efficient. And, you know, people don't also realize that, you know, when it comes to agriculture and botany, there, there are giant institutions of science dedicated. I mean, Caltech has a whole botany department that is, you know, world famous that has come up with a lot of the things that have and are continuing to come up with stuff that will, will change all of this so we can just do it better, more efficiently, as you say.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you touched on that here at the end because I think if anyone came on the dairy, they would really be surprised about two things. How much technology and specialization goes into every aspect of the dairy, how well thought out it is all with the cow in mind. And then how, you know, we talked about it being personal, like how personal it is, how, how much that, you know, we are a part of that. I talked about how close I lived to my farm, like just how Into the farm, we are like it is literally a part of our life more than just a job for us. Um, And I I wish more people could see that and be a part of that conversation. Um, Go and see it. And then let's have a discussion about food and food choices because I think it would really change a lot of people's minds to see what all goes into the farming that, you know, that we all get to enjoy three times a day.
1: Is there actually a way to do that? I mean, should people knock on the door? I mean, as you said, the dairy farms are near the cities. So they go, hey, I'd like a tour, please. And people, (laughs) that seems, you guys are busy.
0: Yeah. Some people do agritourism and open up the doors. It just depends. I always recommend finding someone online. There are tons of great farmers, not just dairy farmers, like farmers across the board sharing about what they do. Social media has given us that. If there's one good thing about social media, it's that it, it opens you up to people that are near and far from you um, and exposes you to different ways of life. And so I always recommend, you know, find a farmer that you can follow online, ask them your questions Typically, if they don't know the answer, they're going to find someone who can tell you, point you in the right direction, um, and just kind of connect you with the right source.
1: Is this going in a good direction, do you think?
0: I think so. I because really do. You, you
1: always hear also, all oh, the death of the family farm, and there's no, you know, agribusiness is taking over. Those are the sorts of you know, headlines you see. Uh, is, is that not happening, and you feel optimistic that, that people like yourself will continue to thrive?
0: I do feel optimistic. Yes, there are challenges. I don't want to like downplay that. There are lots of challenges. Um, Most agriculture... producers are price takers, um, not price makers, which can make things very challenging in this global economy that we now live in. Um, but I also am optimistic. I think that with people being more interested in where their food comes from, it really like, you know, has brought to life, like people buying direct from the farmer, their beef or buying, you know, going to the local farmer's market and connecting more with where their food comes from. That's not to say I buy all my food at the grocery store. That is also a perfectly great option, but if you want to be more connected to the, your farmer, I feel like, we are at a point where we are moving towards opening up that connection more than we ever have, or more than we have in a long, long time.
1: I think that's a good place to stop. So I really appreciate you being here, Tara. And once again, Tara Van Dusen, V-A-Vander Dusen, V N D E R D U S S E N. the website, com. And tell us one more time your uh, social media handle.
0: Yeah, I'm at Tara Vanderdeusen. And then you can find us at Discover Ag or our podcast, Discover Ag.
1: There you go, Tara Vanderdeusen. Thank you so much. We'll see you all next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on on the podcast or dr
0: see what's streaming free all month long during amplify aapi voices on pluto tv watch shows like kim's convenience with simu liu and amazing movies like Meet the Patels and Jason Momoa in Braven. Plus, Pluto TV has hundreds of channels with thousands more movies and TV shows, available on live and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices for free. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay. Never.